we tied up the series with St. Louis uh, tonight, East Coast time. So now we go to St. Louis, tied up 1-1. And I don't know if you saw the game last night, but we were pretty nervous, speaking on behalf of Atlanta for our Braves. Got a great young team, and they built a new stadium just three miles from my house. So I've had a great time following the Braves. Uh, but it's great to be here with you guys. Uh, I want to thank you for inviting me. And I hate to, to start on a down note, Trevor, but I think we've got a little misunderstanding. Um, this E squared, you know, I'm, I'm not a whiz at math, but I know it's, you know, EE. I had a misunderstanding, Trevor. I thought this was a talk on ED. So I got this whole different, you know, set of notes here, and I'll do my best to... To rework it, I mean, I figured a group of guys, you know, it's, a, it's not really an old group, but it's getting a little older, and I thought, you know. <laughs> but, um, but seriously, I did think it was ED, um, evangelism and discipleship. Okay, and that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. I'm going to talk about evangelism and discipleship. And I'm new to this group. I was first here 15 years ago. And that's when I met Trevor and, um, and maybe some of you other guys. It's a long time, so mem- my memory doesn't go that deep. But Trevor and I really connected, and, um, and, and Patrick Eng is a fraternity brother of mine. And yes, everything that that would, would, that would suggest as fraternity brothers. And, uh, and Patrick and I, uh, we would connect. I'd, my dad lives in Scottsdale, so I'd come out here, and then one day... Um, I introduced Patrick to Trevor, and they have formed this great friendship. So I feel connected to you guys. You guys, in, 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 def, in a way, are definitely family to me. And I'm really excited to be here with you tonight. But it is, it is, I'm new to most of you, and I thought as a way of introduction and a way of getting into my topic on ED, um, I thought it would be beneficial if I, if I share with you um, my story. I'm not going to take too much time on it, but just to give some context for what I want to talk about. And, and the, the subject of my talk tonight is leading a fruitful life. I'm originally from Rye, New York. It's a small t- town outside of New York City. Went to college with Patrick. After college, I started a southern migration. I moved down to Washington, D.C., been to North Carolina, and now I've been in Atlanta for uh, 31 years. So when I was 25 years old, I graduated from Duke in North Carolina. And I had an MBA, moved to Atlanta to work for Coca-Cola. They recruited me. I had a background in advertising, and they recruited me to come and and work on their brands. You know, they're a big marketing company, and asked me to help them manage their brands. And the job that they offered me, it was a dream job. It felt like the fulfillment of everything that I had been working towards in my life to that point. So in many ways, my life was just the crest of the wave, but... The other side of the story was my life also was starting to fall apart. It was a weird time for me. Earlier that year, I had learned that my father was leaving my mother under some really bad circumstances. And that reality was absolutely devastating to me. I had never really experienced real pain in my life, like a broken heart. And for the first time, my heart was breaking. My heart was not only filled, filled. My heart was not only filled with hurt, but it was filled with, with anger, rage, and even hatred for my father, for what was going on. It was it was a bad time, but I had even bigger problems than what was happening with my parents, and I didn't even know it. Let me explain that to you. I had lived a completely self-centered life, with no regard for God or other people. 
life was all about me, my education, my career, um, my friends, sports, uh, parties, my fun, drinking, drugs, and everything that goes with it. Around the age of 12, I discovered pornography, and that opened a secret world to me. And I developed an appetite for porn that slowly increased as the years went on. And by the time I was 25, my mind was captivated by those images that I had feasted on. And my desires were to satisfy the lusts of my eyes and my cravings for sex. I was, was, and I still am, an extremely self-conscious person and, and too fearful of developing a relationship with a woman to get the sex. I've, I've gotten over some of the, the fear with a woman, but so self-conscious and so consumed by that that I couldn't even get into a relationship with a woman to, to have the sex. So, so most of my sex was with myself, if you know what I mean. Masturbation absolutely ruled me. And it was a source of ongoing guilt and shame in my life and fear that I might be discovered. I knew that my sexual fantasies were wrong and I would have been humiliated and devastated if anyone knew about them. If anyone had a a window into my mind, what I was thinking about. But I could not stop. In short, I was a mess. You think about what's happening with my parents, but then also the life that I had lived, I was truly a mess. On the outside, my life looked absolutely fantastic. Hotshot MBA at Coca-Cola. But on the inside, I had this hidden life. And it had me on the run. And that's how I dealt with my hidden life, by running away. I regularly ran to alcohol, drugs, and the party scene. And I also ran away through my job just routinely working 60 and 80 hour weeks. I loved my job. I was good at it. I got a lot of strokes. And it was a good hiding place for all the pain that I was going through. Overall, I felt incredibly empty inside and lacking in purpose. And every now and then, I wondered to myself, is this all there is in life? Fortunately, I had one friend who was starting to learn about spiritual things, and over a beer, he would share with me what he was learning. At first, I had absolutely no interest. But in time, I saw something different about him, and I started to get curious. Eventually, I got interested in spiritual things, and I started to read the New Testament. I grew up going to church, and I knew that Jesus was the central person in the Bible. That's pretty much about all that I got out of those years. But I did know that, and that was important. But as I started to read the Gospels, really for the first time, and as an adult, I became genuinely interested in the life of Jesus Christ, and in his teaching, and I felt personally drawn to him. Hard to describe that, just this spiritual thing I'd never experienced, I just kind of felt this draw to this person. He was very attractive to me, his life. And in time, I came to realize that in spite of all of my sin, all of my failures, This person, Jesus Christ, loved me enough to die on a cross so that I could be forgiven of all my sin. And at the age of 30, I accepted his forgiveness, and I entered into a personal relationship with God. And for the first time in my life, I found peace. The circumstances of my life were the same, but something major had changed in my heart. 
And I had hope that God could help me with my problems. As a brand new believer, Jesus' final words, go and make disciples of all nations, really stood out to me. And as I started to follow him, I was curious as to what that might mean for my life. I was going to a church and I was looking for, what does this go make disciples look like here in this church? And I couldn't find it. You know, Jesus modeled it, he talked about it, and I thought, surely they must do that. And I just didn't see anything that I thought was this idea of making disciples. But I had a new friend that I met at that church, and he invited me to a breakfast where I met men who talked about making disciples, and they had a a strategy for doing that, got my attention. And hanging out with those guys, I soon concluded that I needed someone to disciple me before I could possibly do that for someone else. And so I prayed. I really didn't know anything, but I knew enough, well, I'll pray, I'll ask God. I guess he's the one that would do this. And so I prayed and I asked God. And just um, not that long after that, I met this guy, Dave, and we started to meet one-on-one. God just kind of worked it out. I actually had, was dating this girl and the guy said, and I had all these questions, how do you, how do you date a woman as a Christian? And, and the guy said, you really should talk to Dave. He can give you some, he's the love doctor. He can give you some great counsel. So we met, and then that just kind of snowballed, and we, we started to meet, and he would really help me to grow in my relationship with God. He helped me understand the scriptures. He modeled a biblical life that I started to emulate. And he helped me understand what it looks like to be a disciple and to help someone else become a disciple. Dave had been discipling men for many years, And little by little, I started to meet these men. And as I heard their stories, it became evident that Dave had a a great impact on them, and he was a very fruitful man. I met many men who were the fruit of Dave's life in Christ. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I saw the connection between that verse and Dave's life. He was glorifying God as his life bore fruit of men coming to Christ and growing in their relationship with him. And in verse 16 of that chapter, Jesus adds, adds, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I came to realize that Jesus had chosen me. You know, we we think that we're pursuing God, but there's a point where you realize, well, actually, God did it all. And he says, I chose you. And I came to realize that he chose me, and he chose me for a purpose. He wanted me to go and bear fruit. And not there's all kinds of fruit the Bible talks about, especially the New Testament, but fruit that will last, he said. I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So what is fruit that will last? Well, fruit that will last is people. It's right here in this room. People who come to accept Jesus' forgiveness and enter into eternal life. Eternal life that lasts forever. They are the fruit that will last. My life was missing a motivating purpose for living at at that stage of my life in my early 30s. And as a new believer, not only did I have Jesus, but now with this understanding, I had a bigger purpose for living. I was appointed by God to go and bear fruit 
that would last. All of us are lacking a motivating, eternal purpose for living until God clarifies that. That's something that God has to do for us. He has to call us and help us understand that. And I'm praying that God would clarify that for some of you tonight. There was a point for me where that light switch kind of went off. And I realized God has a purpose for me. And it was motivating. And it was eternal. Something that Jesus said, this is why I chose you. And I'm praying that for some of you tonight, you're gonna, that's real, that light switch is going to go on for you. And it's going to be motivating for you and a blessing for you. If you are in Christ, he has chosen you. And he's appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. This is what I want to focus on tonight, leading a fruitful life. And in your workbooks, uh, on page six, I put an outline in there, and that's a great place if you want to take notes. Uh, Where I want to start in getting into this topic, Fruit That Lasts, is in Luke 19. If you have your Bible, open up to Luke 19. I'm going to read quite a bit of it. It's an amazing story that gives us great insight into how Jesus viewed the fruit that lasts. Luke 19. I'm going to start off in verse 1, go a little bit, make some observations, and then keep going. And after I get through this section, I'm going to pause for questions, okay? So if you've got any questions, um, we'll hit those. Okay, Luke 19. He entered into Jericho and was passing through. This is the NASB translation, by the way. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So let me pause there. Jesus is passing through Jericho, This is Luke 19. It's getting late in the end of the story. He's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, and he knows it. Okay? That's the mindset as Jesus is passing through Jericho. And at the end of Luke 18, we learn that as Jesus approached Jericho, he had just met and healed a blind man. Wow! A man who couldn't see gets his sight. Words out. People are praising God. A crowd is building to see, to catch a glimpse of this alleged Messiah who, he ha, um, who had just apparently healed a blind man. He sees the, he's coming through, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree. Big crowd, but a guy up in a tree, you got to take note of that. That signals that that person is looking for something. There's a curiosity, there's a seeking going on. Gets Jesus' attention. He invites Zacchaeus, you know, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. The people grumble. 
Why would they grumble? Well, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. That was one of the lowlifes of the culture back then because they collected taxes from the Jewish people on behalf of the Romans. And the deal was, here's what we want you to collect. Whatever you get above that is yours to keep. And so they would um, take a lot of extra money for themselves. They were very wealthy, and the people knew that, and they absolutely hated them. So Zacchaeus is, is one of the lowlifes of Jericho, and the people grumble, why are you going to his house? We don't know exactly what happened at the house, but Zacchaeus put his faith in Jesus while he was there. And in verse 10, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's on his way to the cross in Jerusalem. And what is Jesus thinking about? He's thinking about the lost people. He's thinking about the guy who is hated by his community, Zacchaeus. Imagine the guilt that Zacchaeus carried. Taking all kinds of extra money from your countrymen for your own selfish gain. Imagine the shame that he carried. And Jesus came to my house and loved me, and Zacchaeus came to a place of saying, ah, you're the Messiah, and put his faith in him. But this is who Jesus is. He's looking for the lost, and he said, this is why I came. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay, let's keep reading the story. Verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, uh, he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Okay, let's pause there. So verse 11, while they were listening to these things, these things happening in Zacchaeus' house, Jesus went on to tell a parable. It's noteworthy that Jesus shared this parable while in Zacchaeus' house right after Zacchaeus believed. The first, I used to always read these, these stories and kind of read them as two separate stories. But, you know, just because there's a, a break there, and, and in a lot of Bibles there's a new title, it's in, it's in Zacchaeus' living room is where Jesus starts to share this. In verse 12, as Jesus starts sharing this parable, he introduces the character of the nobleman. The nobleman represents Jesus. Jesus knows that he's going to be crucified, he's going to heaven, and then he's going to return as a king. He gave, this nobleman gave each of the ten slaves one mina. A mina is about three months' wages. And he told them in verse 13 to do business with this until I come back. As businessmen, we can relate to this. The boss gave them a resource, a mina, and told them to put it to work and bring an increase from it. Jesus is teaching us what the master's business is all about. And we need to tune into this. What is the master's business all about? As his followers, we should really want to understand that and be about that business. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to them, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. 
Another came saying, Master, here's your mind, which I kept which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. So some final observations on, on this part. The nobleman, the master, gathers the slaves for an accounting of what business they had done with their mina. The first slave produced ten. And what did the master say? Well done, Good slave, because you have been faithful, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities. God is looking for faithfulness. The reward overseeing ten cities is based on the slave's faithfulness, not the production of ten. It's really important to understand it's not about the numbers, it's about faithfulness. The second slave produced five, and the master said, you are to be over five cities. Notice he did not say, well done. You have been faithful. He just said, five cities for you. The third produced nothing, and it did not go well for him. He's described as a worthless slave, and his his one mina is taken away from him. We noted earlier that Jesus told this parable in Zacchaeus' house maybe right there in his living room, right after Zacchaeus came to faith. Well, what is so significant about that? I believe that Jesus is telling us that the fruit of others believing in him is what the master's business is all about. Don't miss this. If we want to hear the master one day say to us, well done, you have been faithful, we must share Jesus' heart to seek and to save the lost This is what it means to do God's business. Okay, let me pause there and open it up. If you guys have any questions, I I do not guarantee I have the answers, okay? Um, So, but I welcome if anybody has a question you want to ask. Okay, Patrick. So, Rob, what is is there a significance to the, the second um, servant where, where you made the distinction that he didn't say, you know, uh, you were faithful, you know, you did the business, here's your five cities. Is there? Did, did you feel there was a significance there? Was he faithful? Can we tell whether he was faithful or not? It's a parable. I don't think we know exactly, but what I read into it, Patrick, is he wasn't faithful. I think if he had been faithful, that the master would have commended him for that. And, and faithfulness is something that God frequently commends in the scripture. And so I think he, we, can, we can conclude he was not faithful. He still got a reward, but it wasn't as great a reward. Yes. Hello? I've been studying that scripture for 54 years. There's another parable just like it in Matthew. Where one was given five, he doubled it. One was given two, he doubled it. And both of them were told, well done, by that master. So I'm not sure it was a matter of faithfulness. I think what God showed me last week is scaring me about that parable. I should say this. 
Isn't it a question? Let me ask a question. Who is Jesus speaking to? Financial people? That's what I've been told. I did six years of financial planning. That parable to me was told that you have to compound your money. And I believed it. They used it. Spoke about it. I was seven years old. I know I'm not making a question. Question. Well, you did ask a question. Who is he speaking to? I mean, in Jesus' parables, he's speaking to his followers. And so he's speaking to certainly financial people. He's speaking to small business owners. He's, he's speaking to freak, uh, the car freak guys. He's speaking to all of us. <laughs> so, so but, but that's a great reference. He, the, the parable of the talents is another great parable to look at in conjunction with this. Okay, any other questions before I move on? All right, let's keep going here. So, how do we faith what God has entrusted to us? When we do, we will be leading a fruitful life. And this is what I saw in that guy, Dave, who was discipling me. I saw, that, I saw a fruitful life, and I was like, hmm, that looks pretty amazing. Well, question is, how do we lead a fruitful life? That's the question I want to tackle for the rest of our time. And I'm going to touch on four biblical ideas for leading a fruitful life. And um, so page six, the first one is, is entitled, Think Lost. In Luke 19, what we just read, we see Jesus thinking lost. Jesus knew that there are two types of people in the world. There are believers and there are non-believers. There is no third category. We know that Jesus' heart was always tuned in to the non-believers Why? Because in Luke 19.10, he tells us that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's always tuned into the non-believers. He's seeking them, looking to save them. As a new believer, when I think back on my life, I didn't think about the lost. I really feel like this is something we need to learn. I was still pretty entrenched in my self-centered life, and I mainly thought about myself. Jesus had saved me, but I still was very focused on me. That was beginning to change, but I was still focused on me. I mentioned that I started hanging out with the guys I met at that breakfast group, and they periodically had a speaker come and give his testimony, kind of like you know what Chris did for us earlier. We'd do it over a lunch, invite people who, didn't had, who would really benefit from hearing a story like that to come. And for a long time, um, we'd have those lunches, and I didn't have anyone to, to invite because I didn't think about lost people. You know, when you, when you think lost, you, you look for relationships with people like Zacchaeus, right? People who, who are not believers. You start praying for those people, start developing relationships, look for things that you have in common where you can develop a relationship. And that just kind of, what I've learned, naturally develops into a friendship. And those are the types of people I found that would be very natural to invite to one of these lunches. You know, today I've got friends like that, and, it's, and I can invite them to come because they know, hey, Rob's my friend. Sure, I'd love to come to that lunch. But I didn't think that way in the beginning. I had to learn that. And that took me some time of hearing these other guys saying, well, yeah, I've got this one and that one coming. I was like, well, I don't have anyone to bring, you know. 
So we've got to learn that. And as we're mindful about the lost people around us, we also need to be tuned in to where God is working. In John 5.19, Jesus said, The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Isn't that an amazing verse? Jesus Christ said that I, I, Jesus, can do nothing by myself. I can only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus was always tuned into the Father. He could only do what he saw the Father doing. And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in that tree, the chief tax collector in a tree, I think Jesus knew the Father was up to something there. Likewise, we need to be on the lookout for where God is working around us. So I've been a believer for about three years. And I remember I was asked to come and speak to a Christian group. And I didn't know any of those people. They were a bunch of couples. And I was asked to speak to them. And I spoke for, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes. And at the end, someone, this guy came up to me. His name's Steve. He introduced himself. And this, this was really interesting. He, he looked me in the eye. And he said this. He said, you've got something I want. What is it? <laughs> wow, nice to meet you. I mean, that's pretty blunt. You've got something I want. What is it? And my mind, I, I thought to myself, gee, I guess what I was saying struck a chord with him. And there was a part of me that wanted to kind of rush into some sort of an answer. But instead, um, I, I just kind of backed off and I thought, God is doing something in this guy. And I said, how about if you and I get together and have breakfast in the next couple of weeks? And so we did that. I got to know him. And as I met him, and, and all, I realized he knew nothing about the Bible. He had been going to a church for a while. He had some curiosity. And so I said, hey, would you be interested in, in just learning about these things? I'd love to look at that with you. And we ended up starting to meet on a weekly basis in his, in his backyard. And two years later, um, he met Jesus in his living room. And that was 20, 25, 24 years ago. And to this day, he's a good friend of mine. And, um, but it all started with, it was kind of a Zacchaeus in the tree moment for me. And think about your lives. Who are lost people in your life where God's doing something there? You know, it's like, this isn't an ordinary thing. God has a way of getting our attention, but we got to be tuned in. And Jesus was always tuned in. So thinking lost is absolutely essential to leading a fruitful life. You can't get around it. Okay, secondly, and in your outline, I'm actually going to jump down to number four, which is on page seven. It's um, entitled Abiding, there's an arrow, and then fruit. So the passage in John 15, um, it's my favorite chapter in the entire Bible, and it's the chapter where Jesus introduces a metaphor of the vine and the branches. And he describes himself as the vine, and he says, my followers, believers, are branches, And he said, if you just remain in me, if you abide in me, in the vine, in the life-giving vine, you are going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Simple idea, especially for an agricultural society back then. But just think about it. Vine, branches, if you're apart from me, you can do nothing. In John 15, 4, the verse that's in your workbook there, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. In this passage, we see that the only way for us to bear fruit is to abide in Christ. 
to, what does abide mean? To abide means to remain, to, to stay closely connected, to settle in for the long term. To abide is to enjoy intimacy with God. It's, we enjoy that intimacy. It's a relationship. And as we remain closely connected to Jesus and we abide in his love, he promises that we will bear fruit. This is a promise that you can take to the bank. It's simple. You want to you wanna bear fruit in your life and give glory to God? The only way you can do that is by abiding in the vine. As a new believer, I was starting to read the word on a regular basis to grow in my relationship with Jesus. And my parents were going through the divorce. And it was horrible. My mother was so depressed. I was in Atlanta. She was up in, in Washington, D.C. I'd call her to check on her. And she was literally thinking of taking her life. She would go down in the basement and just wail with, with tears. The depression was intense. And I was a new believer. Uh, I mean, like, you know, in my first year after I came to Christ. And I would, you know, I'm thinking, how do I, how do I help my mother? Her life is just coming unglued. And I would just share with her a, a verse that I had read here. You know, one verse here and one verse there. And, and I didn't realize it at the time, but as the years went by and mom told me how God used those verses, God used those verses to bring her into the kingdom. And I had no idea. You see, I was just abiding in the vine. And God brought fruit through my life. Now, God did it. What did I do? I just had intimacy with God. And I was a new believer. I didn't, I didn't know that much, right? I, I knew that Jesus died for my sins, but I, I was just, I was brand new, but I was having intimacy with, with God. I was spending time with him, enjoying that relationship, and God brought fruit within the first year. That, um, that was an amazing gift to me and, of course, to my mother. And the more that we abide in Christ, the more fruit that we're going to have. More abiding means more of God in our lives, more of him in our activities, more of him in our thoughts, more of him in our desires, in our affections. I love that word that you use, Chris. Where are my affections? It's not that you do more, but you choose to be with him more. And this is a place of rest. This is not a place of a lot of a lot of works and doings. It's a place of rest. So I started discipling men um, 24 years ago. And I have met with men fairly consistently during that time. Um, The biggest exception to that was six years ago when I experienced a year where there were just no men on my radar. You know, uh, there was just no ministry. And this really bothered me. God had done a major change in my life to make, it, make me available. And it's like, God, where are the people that you would like for me to invest in? I didn't understand why God had me on the bench. And I decided to significantly increase my abiding in Christ. I began the most um, extensive Bible study plan that I've ever done. And I leaned harder into my relationship with Jesus. And, and I, I wanted to saturate my mind with the word of God. And I, I, was, I was reading all kinds of different parts of the Bible, getting up earlier, spending more time, and it, and it was great. It was rich. And the word of God, I could, I could just tell, was in me in a greater way. 
And about a year later, the Lord started to bring men for me to meet with. And that began um, a fruitful season, the most fruitful season that I'm aware of. And that has continued to this day. Again, it's not that I did more. But I just chose to be with the Lord more. I prioritized him more. And as I abided more, he brought more fruit. So that is an incredibly important area for um, bearing fruit, is abiding in the vine. Okay, the the third area I want to talk about. Well, let me, why don't I pause there and see if there are any questions. So I've, you know, talked about thinking lost abiding and bearing fruit let's let's pause any questions we good okay great you're either really tired you really got it or a combination we'll work with that okay <laughs> okay yes sir number 10 yeah um Great presentation. I just wanted to ask, when you really put your nose to the grindstone into drenching yourself with more scripture, Bible study, how was the life in your home? How was things going on around you at that time? Because I suffer from wanting to do more, but I'm leaving things out. Well, um, one thing to clarify, if you haven't had a chance to look at my bio, I am single. I've always been single. So my, my home is, uh, is about as simple as it gets. But when I think about my life around me, I, was, um, I had some real pain at that time. There were other struggles I was going through, and I, would get to get, I had um, a group of guys that I would really share that with. It was a hard time. So, but... But in that hard time, I knew that God was with me. I had, I had peace. I felt like I was on track. I felt like the Lord was saying, trust me with this. And God was doing some deep stuff in me to bring about some changes in me. He was really working in my character, as he is known to do. And so, um, and, 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 I, and I sensed that. And so I really had peace. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Let's keep going here. So... The third area, this is point number two in your outline, envision the end. And um, I want to add to that, if you would write that after envision the end, and have a biblical strategy to get there. I failed to include that. Envision the end and have a biblical strategy to get there. To lead a fruitful life, it's, it's valuable to have a vision or a picture of the end of our life and a strategy or a plan to get there. So, as a fairly new believer, I was at a weekend retreat like this, and and God used a verse from Isaiah to give me vision for my life, and and here I am over 20 years later, and this is still the vision for my life. Um, It's Isaiah, Isaiah verse 60, 22. It's in your handout there. And Isaiah writes, the smallest one will become a thousand, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. That verse gave me a vision for my life of what my life could look like at the end. So let's unpack that. This is a powerful verse. The smallest one will become 1,000. The least one a mighty nation. There is no way of explaining how one life multiplies to become a 1,000 or a nation. The only explanation is God did it, 
right? There's no other explanation. I realized as I meditated on this verse that I needed to become small. I needed to become the least. I needed to lose my life and trust God to take it and multiply it. And that was going to be a major work because I was still very full of myself. I had, my whole life, I had been working not to be small, but to be big, to be a big businessman, to be a big athlete, to be, you know, strong, successful. This is, this is what the culture tells us, right? Conquer, conquer, man. Conquer your woman, conquer your work, conquer on the sports field, be big, be strong. And this verse says, be small, be the least. <laughs> it's amazing how God thinks so differently than we do. But he says in that verse, I, the Lord, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. This is something that God does, and it happens in his time. And, and our job is to be small, to be humble, to lose our life, as Jesus often taught. And when we do that, God says, that's a life that I can take and work with, and I can multiply that for, you know, for my glory, for the glory of God. So on that weekend, I heard that. On that same weekend, I, I also heard a, a verse that gave me the strategy or the plan on how I was going to achieve that vision. This verse is 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is a young man he's discipling, and he says to, writes to Timothy, The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. That's in your handout as well. So Paul went deep with Timothy. He exhorted him to do the same with a view to four generations. The four generations in that verse, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men. There's the third generation who, who will also be qualified to teach others. Four generations is the way he's looking. I felt that God, as I listened to this and, and at this retreat, they had, they had four men in front and they told their stories of how one discipled the next, the next, the next. And as I saw that, I felt like God was saying to me, I want you to invest in one man. I want you to go deep like, like Dave had done with me and, and I will multiply it. God was saying to me, I, God, will multiply this. I was involved in all kinds of Christian activities. But I still felt like I was still looking, God, what, what are you calling me to? And this weekend is where it came together. And I felt like God said, Rob, what you're doing is fine, but I would like for you to have one man. And I want you to go deep with that one man. And I want to I show you what I want to do with that. I want to show you my wisdom. And I want to multiply that. And he used Paul's relationship with Timothy to really help me see this. And in this, God showed me how I could participate in, that, in his words of go and make disciples. Remember how I was searching for that? You know, what, is, what does it mean to make a disciple? And I looked around in the church I went to and I didn't see that. Well, here's where it started to come together for me. What it makes to go and make disciples is find one man and go and invest in him. It finally made sense to me. And it was as simple as following Jesus' example of going deep with a few. This is what we read in the Gospels, right? It's what he did. And then them doing the same. That's why we're here today. Because those guys were faithful to go and go deep 
with other men. And God multiplied the whole thing. It's all the work of God. As I follow Jesus' example, he wanted to work through my life to bring fruit. But to participate with God in building his kingdom, um, we have got to be available. There's no getting around that. We've got to have margin in our lives or it's not going to happen. And this was a big issue for me. I was in that big corporate job at Coca-Cola, and most of my time, um, and, and a lot of the time there, I started to feel this tension in my job between the demands of work and what God was leading me to do. Can anybody relate to that? You know, God wants me to do something, but I, man, I, I got to get the job done. And there's that tension that you can feel of how am I going to do this? And this leads to the, um, the next idea I want to talk about for leading a fruitful life. This is number three in your handout. Choose the eternal over the temporal. Establish margin. So Dave, who had discipled me, he taught me that, that two things are eternal. I can't tell you how many times Dave told me this. this. is so important. He said, Rob, two things are eternal. The word of God, God and his word, right? There's one. And the souls of man, people. Those are the two things that are eternal. And, and he said, Rob, give your life to the eternal, not to the temporal, and you'll never regret it. This is the life that Jesus modeled for us and call, has called us to. And he said in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Following him is about daily priorities. And, and we've got to order our life to reflect those priorities. If we don't proactively order our life, those priorities are not going to happen, right? We've we got to do this. We've got to proactively sometimes make some structural changes so that I can be available. That is, that's our responsibility to do that, to, to work that out with God. In John 12, in verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Okay, here's a clue for us on how do we bear much fruit. Well, that seed has to die. And then he says in verse 25, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So notice the promise in verse 24, The seed that dies produces much fruit. So fruitfulness comes from death. That's death to ourselves, losing our lives. And in verse 25, Jesus talks about death to ourselves with the idea of loving versus hating our life. What does that mean, loving versus hating our life? Well, if we love our life, we're going to protect it. We're going to try to stay in control of it. We're going to work to build it, right? But if we hate our life, we're going to let go of it. We're going to be willing and available to follow the Lord and participate in building his kingdom Instead of my kingdom. Right? Am I going to build my kingdom on the earth? Or am I going to build his kingdom? If we're living for the eternal, we will order our lives so that there is margin to be available and participate with God in his work. Margin. What, what is this idea of margin? Well, I've heard a great definition. It's simple. Just think of capacity minus load. Think of your life. What's your capacity 
And then what's the load that's on you? And when that load gets too big, exceeds your capacity, there goes margin. It's gone. Having little or no margin makes us unable to respond to God given opportunities. We've got to have the margin or else Zacchaeus might be in the tree, but man, I, sorry, I got to go. I got I got all these other things to do. And that might, those things to do might be, I got to go build my kingdom. Hey, when Zacchaeus is in a tree, I want to make sure, and it's happening to me, I want to make sure I've got time to say, hey, Zacchaeus, let's talk. But how about we get together? We've got to be available. When I was at Coke, I was really, you know, that tension I told you about, my load exceeded my capacity. And I felt this tension between my job and what God was calling me to do. And I lived with that tension for a couple of years on the job before eventually I, I heard the Lord call me to leave. And I had this, I had just gotten this big promotion. They made me the, the brand manager for the Coca-Cola brand for the world. And I couldn't even wrap my mind around that, that job. And, and everyone was saying, wow, this is amazing. And it was just about three or four months after I got that job and I was in it and everything was when God said, I want you to leave. And he made it so clear. There was no missing it. And so I left. I'd love to have time to tell you that full story, but I don't have enough time. But it, it was amazing how God resolved that tension. And what did I do for it? I abided. I spent time in the scripture. And God really spoke to me in the Exodus story of bringing the people out of bondage, right? And I related to that. And I started to pray, and I felt like God said, this is you. You're in, you're in Egypt, and I want to take you out. Coca-Cola is Egypt for you, and I want to lead you out. And I just couldn't even believe it. It's like, but God, you've opened the door for this new job. What, what are you doing? And I just kept praying and abiding, and God clarified this. And he told me to leave. And when he told me to leave, he didn't tell me what to do. He didn't say, I want you to go be an independent consultant. His only direction was, I want you to keep margin to, to, to reach the lost and to disciple men. That was it. The main thing that I had to do at that point in my life was to trust God, take a big step of faith, and just to let go. So I left. I walked away from Coca-Cola with no job. And uh, believe me, that gave me a lot of margin. <laughs> And, uh, and I, I, I just had margin, and I was available to meet with men, and I started to disciple men. About one year after I left, um, I was really saying, okay, Lord, you know, the bills keep coming in. I'm blowing through my savings. What do you want me to do? And the phone started to ring, and I started to get these little meager consulting projects. And I felt like the Lord said, he who's faithful in the little things, to him will be given more. Faithfulness. Right? Be faithful in these little things. I, these things were so puny, I was kind of embarrassed to do them. If my friends at Coke knew what I was doing. But I thought, well, God wants me to be faithful to this. And so I did these things, and one thing led to the next, and the next, and the snowball started to go. And before you knew it, I was um, connecting with some influential people and had some new great relationships. And God brought this whole new career just out of nowhere for me of, of independent consulting with small businesses, and this is what I've been doing for the last 24 years. 
and I believe I'm going to keep doing this for a long time. It's, it's just so suited for me. I could have never found this on my own, guys. But God brought it as I just said, okay, God, I want to, this is hard, but I want to try to lose myself. I want to I trust you. I want to live for the eternal and not the temporal. And God honored that and has, has brought this. And all these 24 years, I have had ample time for the lost and to disciple men. And what a blessing this has been to my life. So, so what happened after I left Coke? What's happened over these last 24 years? Well, I know it's getting a little bit late. Um, and so I thought I'd give you some pictures, give you some visuals here to help. What I'd like to do is, is share with you guys um, some of the fruit of my life, just to give you an example of what can happen when we step out. Um, so I want to begin by looking at uh, my spiritual heritage. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here without these guys. I'm fruit from their lives. And so as I begin, um, on, the, on the far left here, that's Pete George. He's my spiritual great-grandfather. I've never met him. But, but Pete discipled Joe. And I have met Joe. Joe's gone to heaven now. And Joe discipled Dave Hill. Dave Hill, he's the one that discipled me. And so there's four generations, right? I'm the fourth generation. And the other person I want to highlight right here is Dave Rathcamp. These two Daves uh, were and are very good friends. And Dave Hill, he's the one that had this vast influence on my life. And Dave Hill introduced me to his good friend, Dave Rathcamp. Dave Rathcamp lives in Houston. And Dave Rathcamp has also had an incredible influence in my life. So this is uh, the spiritual heritage, and I'm fruit from their lives. And now let me introduce you to, to um, the guys who, uh, when I think about the men that I spent time with, and I've, I've spent time with a lot of guys, but the ones I want to highlight, are, and I'll try to move through this pretty quickly, is, are, are guys where I've seen major life change, and I've seen them impacting others. So here's the Steve I was talking about. This is the guy who said, you've got something I want, what is it? Um, and, and the people I've got on these slides are people where we've seen major life change in their lives. So God has used Steve to really impact his wife and two daughters. Uh, this is a third daughter, uh, that they adopted from China. Also, um, friend Dan, Steve also had a big impact on Ken. Ken has discipled Dutch and Dutch has discipled Craig. So there you see how the multiplication happens, Right. So there's Steve. Um, whoops. This is Greg. And, and uh, Greg's someone who I spent a lot of time with just studying the life of Jesus. Greg has really gotten a hold of the message. And he's had a great influence on a bunch of guys. Um, his mom and dad. Donnie is someone he grew up with. Um, this is Adam. And Adam has had a big impact on Bryce. Um, Jeff, Dave, Justin, and Brian aren't, aren't here in the, in the picture. But... Greg's had a great influence on a lot of men. And then there's Brent. Uh, Brent is someone who literally showed up at my door. A friend brought him over. He had been kicked out by his wife, who was five months pregnant. And Brent was an addict and just was at the bottom of the barrel. And I, and I said, Brent, you can, you can stay here with me. I gave him conditions. And one of those was, you've got to get up and spend time with me in the scripture. And um, that began a five-year um, season in which we met most weeks 
you know, in, in a discipleship relationship. And it's incredible how God, he hasn't had a drink since, and how God has restored his marriage. He's had a great influence on his three children. Um, he's been wanting to be involved in, in their lives in ministry. And so he's gotten involved with youth ministry. And he also has had a great impact on a lot of men. Here's Adam um, and his family. Adam's had a great impact on, on his brother and some other men. I hate going through these guys because every one of these guys is like so in my heart, you know. Um, but I gotta, I, I'm trying to be sensitive to time here. Here's Nick. Nick's someone who I met through business. He works for one of these small businessmen. He's the top sales guy. And Nick and I just, you know, met at a, at a business thing one day. And, and uh, I shared some of my story. And I could just tell it was a Zacchaeus in the tree moment, you know. And Nick and I, we, we started meeting. We met for five years. Huge life change in him. He's had a great impact on his dad and his son. His dad just died last year. And, and what a blessing for Nick to go to his father's funeral and with confidence that his father's in heaven. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then Scott, Eric, and Ryan. Scott and Ryan are guys that he works with. So he's having an influence there in the workplace. This is another Ryan. So the... Um, this slide and the slide forward, these are guys who I remember I talked about how the new season of fruitfulness started six years ago. This is the, the, that new season of fruit starting. So starting with Ryan, he moved to Atlanta from California right out of college, and we met and seen huge life change in Ryan. He's moved back to California just recently, and he's had a big impact on Ron's life. This is him at his wedding with his new wife. Um, that's Jeff right there in the middle, and Jeff... Oh my gosh, I can't tell you what a changed life that Jeff is. And these are um, guys that he leads in a small group. And um, he's had, uh, I would say, with, his, with, with these guys, the names are up here, but we haven't seen as significant life change. We're seeing it, but it seems like it's in the earlier stages than the other guys. These things take time, you know? But we're really seeing movement in his mom, his sister. Um, that's Ryan, who had just finished his first marathon. We were getting together to celebrate with him. That's Jamie on the right. Jamie's someone who I went to college with, or excuse me, I went to the same college as him. He was about 15 years behind me, and we met an alumni thing, and we had a lot in common. Again, it was a kind of a Zacchaeus in the tree moment. You know, it's like, God, what are you doing here? And one of those things was we both liked to run. I developed a friendship with Jamie for about five years where we would just get together and run. And we, you know, started talking about spiritual things that built and built. And after about five years, he said, Rob, can we get together and start studying? It's like, absolutely. Two years into that, Jamie came to Christ. Today is his third spiritual birthday. And uh, he's having a real influence on his wife, Kelly, who's the, on the left there. Uh, we're doing a couple study, and we've got another couple. We're studying the Gospel of John, and Kelly is just really moved by what she's seeing in the life of Jesus. Here's Forrest. Forrest was in Atlanta on an internship at the University of Alabama, and we met. He had heard me talk during the summer, and he asked me to disciple him at the end of the summer. I was like, what college kid asked someone like me, who's the age of his father, to disciple him? I said, Forrest, I've never done that before, but let's try it. Let's start meeting on the phone. He's now up in Boston getting his master's degree. He, he's, he's a brilliant person. He's into data analytics. He's someone who's on the cutting edge of technology. And he came to Christ. He met Jesus in an incredible way um, two and a half years ago. And Forrest has such a heart for the lost. He's so involved in all these internationals, in technology, in Boston, like in the Cambridge area. 
really exciting young guy. He's, he's 25. And the story wouldn't be complete with just telling you about my family. So there's my mom, bottom right, told you about her. Um, about five years after mom came to Christ, my brother Douglas came to Christ. Incredible changed life. And then my sister, out of the pain in her marriage. There's my dad. You know, my parents were divorced. This was last November. We were together in New York. My dad um, is 89. He's gone to church his whole life. Um, he is not a Christian. But for the first time, he started reading the Bible just this past January. And, he, and he's, been, he's reading it. And he's into it. And he told me a couple months ago that he has not accepted Jesus' for forgiveness for his sins. But he's learning. And God's working. So hopefully... Dad, before, you know, time expires, maybe, maybe in his 90s, maybe in his, maybe year 89, he'll, he'll meet the Savior. So that is uh, an example of when we do these things. You know, there's nothing special about me. I've been, a, I've been abiding in the vine. God gave me a vision that I'm, that I'm pursuing. I've made some decisions in my life. But this is something that God makes available to every single one of us as believers. Um, I just want to mention a couple quick things on the outline. You probably noticed there are some things I haven't been talking about. Sorry, I realized I didn't have enough time. Um, I'm not going to get to uh, number five and six just because of time, but just very briefly, the, the fifth area of how we live a fruitful life. Jesus talks a lot in John 15 about pruning. He prunes to bring more fruit and to bring much fruit. And pruning hurts. <laughs> it hurts to be pruned. Um, but there is a purpose to it. There's incredible wisdom. Please read that. If you if you're not into the, haven't read that passage, great insight there. The last thing I'll touch on briefly is persevere. To lead a fruitful life, we have got to persevere. This is a long-term work. Um, in Luke 8, Jesus said... Um, by persevering, you'll produce a crop. And he says in Galatians 6, do not, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. This is a long-term work, and we must persevere to realize the vision. One does not become a thousand in a few years. We must persevere and trust God to fulfill his word. Remember that verse in Isaiah, God said, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. This isn't on my timetable. It's on his time. What God's looking for from us is faithfulness. It's not about numbers, right? It's about faithfulness. In my life, I mainly try to stay focused on abiding in the vine and trusting God for his promise and keeping this vision in, in front of me and trying to make good choices of the eternal over the temporal. And as I do that, God brings fruit. God's glorified. And perhaps one day... He'll have worked through my life to touch a thousand or a mighty nation. Gee, that just sounds outrageous. Well, think about this spiritual heritage slide that I share with you guys. Think about these guys. I'm one person, right? And I've shared some fruit out of my life. Well, how about, um, you know, for Pete or for Joe... Let's see. I'm not sure how to get that big. That's all right. Um, for Peter, for Joe, just think if they have multiple people, how their lives really become a thousand or a mighty nation. And think about, for me, the people that God's used me in their life 
how as they reproduce and, and there's generations, this really is what happens, okay? And God wants us to be a part of it. This is something that he has for your life. And remember, Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is how we show that we are the followers of Jesus, is by bearing much fruit. God wants every single one of you to have a fruitful life. And this is a life of purpose. I couldn't get excited about conquering the planet with sugar water, quite frankly, <laughs> when I was at Coke. That didn't get me out of bed, right? Every day, as, as the seasons of life got hard. This is something that I continue, I'm more excited today than I've been, you know, in all these years I've been doing this. And this, and this is a vision God's given me. And maybe God is speaking to some of you men tonight and saying, this is what I have for you. Give your life to this. This is what Jesus modeled, right? And he said, follow me, right? It's, it's right there for the taking. And the joy that we have when we do this. Um, John wrote in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. The joy that I have, those slides I showed you, the men who I've invested in, is, uh, it, it, it's hard to put into words. So this is what God has for us. I'll wrap up there and, and check in and see if you guys have any conclusions before um, we, we ended up. Any questions? Trevor. Rob, um, with everything you're talking tonight, how would you recommend a guy get started? What's the first step in living a fruitful life? Is it going out and making disciples, or is it finding a guy to come into his life and show him? Well, number one is, is clearly abiding in the vine. Right? So if you don't have, if you're not abiding in the vine, if you've got a, a part of your life that you know God is saying, that's not what I have for you, you know, if it's, if it's disobedience, right, you've got you to gotta clean that up. If you're not regularly spending time in the Word of God, you know, that is certainly number one. Um, if you haven't been discipled, I would say that that is huge. And, and this is a community of men. I think um, that Trevor on his slide used the word network. You know, who are we? We're a network of men. We're a community of men. And, and this is what this community is about. So there are men in this room that would, that would be thrilled that maybe even are asking God for a Timothy. So if, if, you, if you have not experienced that, to step into that and, uh, and you could ask Trevor or some, someone else here or just pray like I did. I didn't know how God was going to bring this guy to me. And all of a sudden, I remember shaking Dave's hand one morning, and I felt like, like God said to me, this is the man you've been praying for. And my reaction was, there's no way. This guy, I knew he was a spiritual giant. I knew enough about him. I said, this guy, there's no way he'd have time for, for a newbie like me. And I couldn't have been more wrong. So that clearly is next. If you've been discipled, well, are you, are you meeting with someone? You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to be one step ahead of that person. And, and I learned from all these Timothys. I need to be spending time with these guys because I'm constantly learning. You just need to be one step ahead. So I would say those are, depending on where you are, that's how I'd go about it. Great question, Trevor. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Four. 
just a quick, I just was at our church Sunday, and the preacher gave a really good, easy way to find men. He said, what did Jesus do? When he saw Zacchaeus, he said, hey, Zach, you just enlightened me. I didn't know he was going to the cross that day. Wow. He said, hey, Zach, you want to go to lunch? I'm buying at your house because I don't have one. Invite guys to lunch and then just ask them a simple question. What do you want? And then shut up and let them tell you. And let him list what he wants. And then say, is God part of that? And let God do the rest. Yeah, thank you. What we're talking about, this is so close to the heart of God. That when you genuinely ask God, depending on where you are, God, would you help me to have intimacy with you? Would you help me with this this sin area that I keep struggling with? God, would you send a man to disciple me? This is so close to the heart of God. This is, this is what Jesus came and modeled. And the tragedy is, I struggle to see this in Christianity. I mean, I see it in communities like this. It's incredible. But at large, I see a lot of mega churches and stuff. I see a lot of programs. But I don't really see this. And this is what Jesus modeled. This is so close to the heart of God. We ask God. God's going to answer. He's going to respond. Any last questions? Okay, thanks guys. I look forward to being with you this weekend.